So what do you do? Are you a fighter or a flighter? Uh, if you face danger, if something comes up or someone comes up in your face and, and you feel this immediate threat, is your tendency, is it to run or is it to fight? Is, do, you, do you follow the fight or the flight response? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, that uh, human, humans, and actually animals are too, we're hardwired with this physiological response to danger. So if something intimidating suddenly presents itself to me, my body automatically does a few things. It pumps adrenaline into my bloodstream and my pulse quickens and my blood pressure rises and my pupils constrict a little bit and maybe my muscles get tight. And the thing is that adrenaline, that physical response, is preparing me to do something. And it's either typically we, we either f- fight, we stand and fight, or we flee. But either way, that physiological response, it's a mechanism to get us ready to do something, to, to confront whatever it is that's confronting us. Uh, it's also called hyperarousal or acute stress response. And you know, sometimes <clears throat> if you faced a line, you'd say, yeah, that's the way I would respond. But you know, too, if someone offends you, or they say something offensive, don't you see the same response? Uh, adrenaline, fist clenched, heart, you know, suddenly race. It's the same thing. It's the same kind of response. It's this, uh, I'm getting ready to defend myself or someone else. You know, I'm going to either fight or I'm going to flee. Uh, it's a way of coping with life physically that's probably helpful in some situations and, and very much not helpful in other situations. So ask yourself the question, do you, do you tend to flee? That's one response, and sometimes that's a good one. Or do you tend to stand and fight? And, and that's another one, sometimes that's okay too, it just depends. But typically most of us tend towards one thing or the other. We tend to be those who run away for preservation's sake, or we tend to be those who, are, who stand and fight. We tend to have a, a response one way or the other. Um, short term, this can be helpful. And it's, we're wired this way. God wired us this way. We didn't choose to be this way. You know, this is a, a preservation thing. I'm not saying this is good or bad. But, but after that inert, initial surge of adrenaline, you know, most of the time we're not actually facing life or death. It's something less intimidating than that. How do we deal with those challenges to our life, those things that made us have that initial aroused response? How do we deal with them when the adrenaline settles and the pulse slows and we kind of go back to normal. How do we deal with those issues that elicited that initial response? Where do we take those troubles or those challenges? Uh, King David is a guy who faced a ton of challenges through his life. And you know from his story from his youth on, he was a guy who faced fight or flight situations. This, he didn't live just a golden life as successful as we think David was. You know, a good part of his life, he was on the run. He was running from danger. He was preserving his life through just getting away from Saul and trouble. But he faced these challenges both to his safety and to his honor and to his family's safety and the nation's safety, off and on through all of his life. And he had something to say about how he was responding to the challenges and the threats he faced in this life. And the place I want to pick that theme up this morning is in Psalm 62. That's where we'll park for this morning, Psalm 62. I'm going to read this slowly. Read along in your Bible if you want. I've got New American Standard. Um, Close your eyes if you'd 
if you want and listen. We'll read through it slowly. We'll make comments afterwards and hopefully make some applications that are helpful in our challenges we face. Psalm 62. David wrote, My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest, the rock of my strength. My refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression, that is what you can do to others, and do not vainly hope in robbery or what you could take from others. If riches increase, don't set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. And we've read the psalm, so we know David has some kind of trouble going on. But isn't it interesting in this psalm, he doesn't start with trouble. He starts by stating his outlook on life. The way he faces life day in and day out is characterized in verses 1 and 2. He says this, My soul waits in silence for God. He has my salvation. He's my stronghold. And that's why I won't be greatly shaken. In other words, David, whatever's going on in life, he entertains life as someone who says, I'm I'm waiting on life in God's presence. And I'm recognizing that whatever a new day or a new week brings, whatever new challenges or threats face me, I'm facing them as someone who's sitting in God's presence, waiting on God to be my defense, to show me what to do or to keep me from doing things. But my life is lived with this perspective that I'm in God's presence. He's my rock. He's my stronghold. I'm not facing life with the fight or flight mentality, in other words. I might still, and any of us might still, on any given provocation or moment, we might feel this surge. But David says, when I look at life, and as I live day by day, I'm doing so with this attitude that I am waiting in God's presence, and I know He's my strength. He's the source of my defense. So I'm going to trust Him for whatever comes up, and knowing that, I know that I'll never be greatly shaken. This is David's starting point. It's not where he gets to in the middle of trouble. It's the place he starts before trouble comes. I'm waiting on God. I recognize in God my source of strength. David says, by the way, my stronghold. I don't know what this would convert to us today. You know, if you lived in David's time, if you, let's say, a little farm outside of town, you would be susceptible to marauders and to invading armies. You'd have basically no defense. But if you were in a walled city 
And walled cities were typically built on tells, these elevated rocky mounds, and then you put a rock wall around it. And then within those rock walls, you put these tall towers. You get the picture. When David says God is his stronghold, David's saying God is the safest, most secure place I can imagine. A tall tower on a rocky hill, a place where I'm safe from any assault, any robbers, any armies. I'm in the safest place possible. I don't know what this would look like in your mind. Um, if it's your home, if it's a quiet corner in your home, if it's a cave, I, this, this doesn't elicit the same kind of things for us. Maybe it'd be a bomb shelter if you grew up during World War II or the Cold War, maybe a bomb shelter. But in our minds, we should have some equivalent where we say with David, I understand that God provides the ultimate in safety and security that I can envision. That's what I have in God. For David, that was that strong tower. You may have something else in your mind. Before troubles come, David's not confused about where he's going to turn for help. He says in verse 1, I wait for God only. In verse 2, He only is my rock. So no, no matter what happens, I'm not going to be greatly shaken. I'm in God's presence, trusting Him as my deliverer. Now David does get around to the trouble. And he doesn't talk about it very specifically, but in verses 3 and 4, he says there's two issues going on. The first is, for whatever reason, David is in a vulnerable state of life. And this is not made more clear. We don't know what, what frame of life he was in. We don't know what specifically was going on. But whatever is going on for him personally or around him, he feels particularly vulnerable or weak. He's at a point in his life where he doesn't feel he has a lot of personal resources. He's weak. And besides that, he knows that the people around him... <clears throat> who should be folks he can count on, who would be his help, he knows that they're actually plotting to hurt him while he's in this vulnerable state. They're not there to help him. They're there to push him down. He says he feels like this leaning fence. Uh, have you guys seen an old fence? The, the posts are rotten. It looks like a good wind would blow it over. He says that's what he feels like. Or if you've seen the old stone walls that farmers lay up, you know the frost is hard on those. And if you've seen a wall that's not been taken care of for a while... It gets heaved up and down. The top rocks get shaky and it looks like it's going to fall over or some of those rocks are. And David says, that's what I felt like. I felt really vulnerable, really weak, like my life was ready to fall over. And then on top of that, when there were people around me that should have been my help, those who'd support me, no, they're actually secretly trying to do me harm, to get rid of me. He uses the term murder. That's what's in their heart. Murder is in their heart. It's like Brutus with Julius Caesar. He's, it's a kiss to a friend, but really these people are carrying daggers with them against David. He's vulnerable, and he knows that those who should be helping him are actually trying to get rid of him. So, what will he do? Will he stand and fight? You know, will he clench his fists and say, I'm ready to take him on? Or will he turn and run? You know, later when his son Absalom threatens the throne and the crown, David does flee. You see both in his life, standing and fighting and also fleeing. So what's David going to do? Is he going to seek flight or is he going to fight? Verses 5 to 7, <clears throat> uh, David doesn't flee uh, and he doesn't fight, but he talks to himself. Uh, you know, psychologists talk about self-talk. What do you say to yourself in your own mind? Well, this get, can get a little wacky, but this is self-talk in the best way. This is self-talk in the best way. What does David say to himself? And by the way, as you read the psalm, you'll see that sometimes he is just speaking to the air, so to speak. He's making a declaration. 
Then other times he's talking about certain people. Here he's actually talking to himself. And what does he say? He reminds himself of what he'd said his life is characterized in verse 1. He reminds himself to wait in silence for God only. Don't get up. Don't get disturbed. Wait on God. He reminds himself that his salvation, his honor, and his reputation are in God's hands. He's not fleeing and he's not fighting. He reminds himself that God is his refuge, his strength, and his help. He's telling himself these things. He's reminding himself of what's true of him and what's true of God in the context of his vulnerability and the threats he's receiving from others around him. And then verse 6, I don't know if you noticed, but he says in verse 6, I won't be shaken. In verse 1 he said, I won't be greatly shaken. And I think what's going on is, verse 1 he says, whatever comes, I might be shaken a little bit, but life will go on. I won't be greatly shaken. But here he's actually saying, I won't be shaken, period. And I think what's happening is, as David reminds himself of what's true and whose presence he is sitting in front of, his confidence is growing. So when he thinks again of who God is and that he's in God's presence and God is his strength and is his salvation and is his fortress, his confidence grows. It doesn't diminish or shrink. It grows. And by the way, you know, typically when we face trouble, we tend to focus on the problem. And I say this as a guy, uh, I've had issues. I tend to, uh, most people think I'm very easygoing, generally I am, but, you know, I, I would face these burdens where I couldn't breathe, you know, where literally the adrenaline hits my heart and I can't breathe. And all I can think about is the disaster that's ready to confront my life, you know, it, it's crazy. And all I can see is the problem. And all I can see is my impotence to do anything about it. David, though, he does the right thing. He doesn't focus on the problem. He focuses on what's true about him and God. Then his breathing goes back to normal. My breathing goes back to normal. I can breathe again. That's what he's doing and he's reminding himself. So instead of getting shakier as time goes on, he gets more confident. His confidence grows. It goes from I won't be greatly shaken to I won't be shaken. I don't know what's coming, but I know I'm safe in God's hands. I won't be shaken. This doesn't say anything here, by the way, about David petitioning God for help. Did you notice that? He's in trouble and he needs help. But he doesn't ask God for help. It's like, well, why not? You know, sometimes my wife or my daughters will, will come into the room or something. And, you know, if you see someone you know, you read their face and you know something's amiss. And so I will say something like, well, tell me every little thing. You know, what's wrong? Tell me every little thing. You know, get it off your chest. Tell me what's going on and, and you'll feel better. And typically they do. And, and David could have done that here, right? I mean, there would have been nothing wrong with David talking, speaking clearly, unloading his soul to God about this is what's going on. And oftentimes we feel better simply because we've told someone else or we've talked to God verbally about that issue. And maybe this is more true of women than men. I don't know. Uh, but... Uh, generally, we feel better when we've talked about it, we've prayed about it. David doesn't do that here. And it's not as if doing that's a problem or wrong, but I think the reason he doesn't here is because, for whatever reason, this time he knows that God is fully appraised of his situation. He knows God knows everything that's going on. And so he's free, in his mind, he just comes down and he sits before, mentally and emotionally and spiritually, he sits before God 
knowing God knows what's going on. Basically, his presence before God is, is as much as saying, Lord, you take care of this. I'm not, I'm not going to try and do anything about this, Lord. I'm here in your presence. I'm waiting for you to show me what to do or for you to engage on my behalf. But I'm not going to do anything, Lord. I sit and I wait on you. I love this. Uh, you know, most of us, we face the battles, the fight or flight. We're going to do one or the other. Or we're trying to figure out how to, how to get by some issue, how to take care of that person. And by the way, you know, whenever you teach, you have to be careful it's, it's easy, it's easier to paint in black and white, you know, but the truth is life's not like that. You have to nuance almost everything you say. There are times in which God tells us, this is what I want you to do, or you know. Here's a situation, and you're responsible to do certain things. We're not talking about that. We need to be responsible for the things God holds us responsible for, so we're not saying that. But when we're faced with these threats and these things we don't know what to do about, maybe we even are responsible, but we're not sure how to discharge that responsibility. That's what we're talking about here. So in this case, it's David sits before God's presence, waiting for God to either act on his behalf or for God to show him or tell him what he needs to do. But he's not going to act on his own. He's going to wait on God and let God intervene on his behalf or tell David what to do. This really, by the way, gets to the heart. We're we're reading Old Testament here, but this really gets to the heart of of both Testaments and certainly of the Christian faith. You know, as Christians, the thing that makes us different from the rest of the world is faith, isn't it? Um, Hebrews 11 says it's impossible without faith to please God. And it's faith is the vehicle by which we enter into life with God, right? She got passages like Habakkuk, you know, quoted uh, by Paul in Romans. Uh, verse that uh, helped set off the uh, Reformation. You remember the Reformers were talking about the just shall live by faith. There's at least two thoughts here. The first is for the Reformation, when we read Romans, typically this. We enter life through faith in Christ. We live, we gain life through faith in Christ. But it goes beyond that. Having entered life or received life through faith in Christ, faith is now supposed to be characteristic of the life we live. Faith should be the normal aspect of a Christian's life. We entered life by faith, but now we live by faith. And that's what David is doing here. When we're talking about faith, we're talking about taking God at His word, trusting the person, the character, and the word of God, that He'll do what He said, that He's as good as His word, and we can trust that. And that's exactly what David's doing here. David knows he can depend, he can count on God. And so this exemplifies faith. I'm not acting on my own behalf. I'm waiting for God to show me. I'm not taking up arms. I'm not defending myself. I'm waiting for God to show me what I should do. Uh, Most of us uh, work and we hone and we refine our own uh, mechanisms uh, for defense. Uh, So... Uh, let's say you're offended by something someone says, or you face a vicious dog in your backyard. You probably already have a mechanism. You probably already tend towards one thing or another. So that if you read a scripture that encourages you to do nothing except commit a thing to God and wait on Him, this might be a challenge for you. And again, we don't do this in every situation, but in these kind we do. Um, This is something we need to work on, where we say, Lord, I'm, I'm not going to take that into my hands. I'm not going to try and take care of this issue. I'm going to wait until I know what you want to do or until you act on my behalf. And in verse 8, he turns around and encourages other people around him 
uh, to do the same thing. This is a this is a good thing. David is concerned for himself, but he's concerned for others as well. And so when he feels encouraged from God's presence and God's faithfulness, he turns around and encourages those around him to do exactly the same thing. Verses 9 and 10, I'm, I'm thinking, why didn't David... Uh, take things into his own hand. He's a king, so he's got power and he's got wealth. We'd say he's well-connected. He's got resources available. So it's not as if, as the king, he couldn't do something, right? I mean, if anybody had the ability to face up to a challenge, it should be the king. If not the king, who? So why didn't David do that? And, and I think David talks about two things here. He says, and... Kind of the same, same coin, two sides. Man, whether David's friends are or foes, they're ultimately impotent. Mankind, humans like David, are ultimately impotent. And it's God alone who has true power to help. Uh, Psalm 62, verse 9, uh, one of my favorite uh, verses in the Old Testament. Uh, Men of low degree are only vanity... And men of rank are a lie in the balances. They go up, they are together, lighter than breath. What's David saying? Men of low degree are vanity. You know, if I'm in desperate straits and I need help and I see a homeless person next to me, he has no home, he has no power, he has no money, he, he's not connected politically or socially, I don't look to him for help because I know he doesn't have it. So men of low degree are vain. If I need help, they don't have it. it. It's empty. They're empty as far as my need goes. That's what David says. But then he says men of rank or power, they're a lie. What's that mean? See, on the other hand, I look at the street person, I say, well, he can't help me. But let's say I look at my wealthy neighbor or friend. He's got money. He's socially connected. He's politically important. And I say, well, that guy, though, he has resources, so he can help me. Now, in some things, maybe he could. But not in this case, not in David's situation here. And in the ultimate arena of life, the ultimate things that really matter, that person, he is as without power to help you as the pauper, homeless person on the street. He's a lie because there's the appearance of power, but there's no reality. So the poor man... And the rich man together in David's situation, they are equally impotent to help David with what's going on. So David's in that same boat. David's the king with the resources of the king, but he says, the things I have, the things I have control over, they are not adequate to face the challenge I have in front of me. So men can't help me and I can't help myself. It's got to be someone with real power to come in and help me in the situation I'm in. If I tell you that someone with power, real, uh, worldly power, can't harm you, um, you might say, well, no, probably they could. And, you know, Jesus says in the Gospels, uh, don't fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul, but fear God who can kill both body and soul. And this gives us a little perspective. In God's eyes, even though a person could come up, has the power to end your life or mine, Jesus says that's not really what you need to be afraid of. So we're not saying people can't really harm us or really help us in some limited fashions. They can. 
But when Jesus talks about this in the gospel, he says the end of your life, it's really not that big a deal. That's not what you need to be afraid of. For most of us, our, our focus, our eyes are so much on this world and our time here and the things in this world that that is what we're afraid of. But Jesus says that's not what we should be afraid of because the, the greater threat is not uh, defeat or death in this life. It's eternal separation from God. Jesus puts this in perspective. And this is kind of ultimate power David is thinking about. See, men do. We have limited power within our space and our time that God allots us. But our life is short and it's over. And then who can help us? Jesus says, don't worry about the ones who can only take your life. For us, that's like the ultimate thing. But Jesus says, no, it's not. So don't fear those who can take your life. That puts fear in perspective. But fear God. Why? Because God has the real power. He can kill your body and He can kill your soul. Eternally separated from Him. Jesus says that puts things in perspective. David, when he speaks here, he gives us God's perspective. And in God's estimation, the difference between the most powerful man on the earth And the most impotent person on the earth is of no measurable difference. When God says, I'm talking about real power, He says from the greatest to the least, there's not enough difference to measure. In fact, He says, if you take all of humanity together from all time and you put them on some great cosmic scale, put all of humanity on one side of the scale and put air on the other side, air is more substantial than people. Now that's not true morally, but think of this. You and I, we're breathing right now, right? We're living our life in the air around us. And when you look at the sky and you see the clouds, it's, it's mist and vapor, isn't it? It's the air. So all of us here, we were born, we live, we breathe, and we die, and we're buried. What about the air? The air was here before us. The air will be here after us. On one hand, we look at it and say it's inconsequential, and it is. But guess what? It's more consequential than we are because it lasts longer on the earth than we do. So in this great cosmic balance, God says, guys, you're not that powerful. You're not as powerful as the air you breathe. Related to ultimate issues, we're weaker than the air. We've got less standing, less ability to help someone or ourselves than the air around us. You know, I hope you've seen some of the Olympics this week. Uh, Yeah, I've loved it. It's been fun. We've sat at home as a family and watched the Olympics. It's been great. NBC's uh, ratings are supposed to dive today. Do you know why? Because Michael Phelps is done swimming. I'm serious. Eight golds medal, Superman, right? Michael Phelps. I'm thinking he's a... He's a golden god, Neptune, risen out of the waters of Beijing with a trident in one hand and gold in the other, right? He's golden, he's powerful, he's the, the face of success for the world today is Michael Phelps. But you know, just think of this. What if Michael Phelps is in the deep end of the pool and gets a cramp and can't swim? He goes to the bottom, a few minutes without breath, the, the world's greatest athlete, the world's greatest swimmer, the guy who can hold his breath a long time. What happens? He's history. Or if you and I lie dying on our bed and Michael Phelps brings the trident and the gold into our hospital room, what can he do for us? Not much. 
In other words, no matter what our vision of somebody with real power, real standing, real, real ability to help us, whatever it is, ultimately it's of no value. They are of no value, David says. And if we think they are, we're setting ourselves up for trouble. And you'll read this throughout the Old Testament, the prophets especially. Whenever Israel's gone wrong and God confronts them through the prophets, He says, hey, don't trust in Egypt. King of Judah says, I know what I'll do. I'm facing the Assyrian king. I'll make a treaty with Egypt. Egypt will help me. Or the, Jew, the Israeli king's coming down against me in Jerusalem. I'll sign up with the Assyrian king. God says, don't do it. In all of these cases, these guys were looking to power that they thought they could lay hold of and tap and would serve them. And of course, it never did. It was always counterproductive. All these alliances you see Israel enter into, they were always counterproductive. They didn't do what the kings had hoped they would. David knows that. He gets it. He's not looking for help or for power in man. And he closes with this. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. And he says this repeatedly. It's not that I've heard it. It's not that it's a rumor. It's not that somebody might have said it once and it might be true or not. David says, no, this is an established fact. You can count on it. Power belongs to God. If you need power, there's one source. There's one place to get it. It's God's. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. You need power, God's got it. Do you need power uh, acting on your behalf? God's kind. So that he's disposed, he's ready to use his real power on your behalf. This is what we need at the end of the day. Not Michael. Not a king, not a general, not an army, not more money, not more powerful friends. We just need to wait on God because he has real power and he's kind. I don't know, you know, you never know where someone's coming on a given week or time in their life. You know, are you facing an issue where you feel like I've got challenges in my life that are above or beyond my ability to cope with? I don't know what to do. If you are, then say with David. Sit before God, give that issue to God, and wait for God to show you either how He's going to interact for you or what He wants from you. could be either. If you're tempted as your response to life for the fight or flight response, rethink that. And by the way, I don't say that you'll get over that response, you know, if you face uh, an intimidating situation necessarily. But you can talk yourself through that, as David did. You can remind yourself what's true. You can talk yourself back down out of that physiological fight or flight response. What's really true? What's at stake? What do I need to be aware of? What does God want from me in this? We can do this. In saying this too, let me throw in another qualifier. You know if you tell Christians that God is always going to save them, uh, God's not always going to save us, by the way. Uh, sometimes God is going to allow you and I to suffer. And it's not an accident. And it's not that uh, God's plans fell apart and God lost control of the universe and so you're getting something God didn't want you to have. That's never the case. God is omnipotent. Nothing occurs in your life or mine that He doesn't cause or allow. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that you and I as Christians are called to suffer. Paul says elsewhere, if you're a Christian and you try and live 
life here on the earth in a way that honors Christ, Paul says there again, you will suffer because you're an alien, you're a foreigner in a foreign land that's opposed to God and His things. So when I say, uh, when we're talking about God intervening on our behalf, it does not always mean that He's going to save our life. Jesus commented in the Gospels, uh, martyrs, Christian martyrs, more martyrs today than any time in history, uh, God didn't preserve their life. They belong to Him. He loves them no less than He loves you and I, but He allowed their lives to be taken. But they know who they belong to and they know where they're going or they knew, they knew where they were going. Does this make sense? First uh, Peter 2, 21 through 23, uh, Pete says this, uh, Christ suffered and He left you an example to follow in His steps. He committed no sin. There was no deceit in His mouth. While being reviled, He didn't revile in return. He was suffering, yet He uttered no threats. He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Jesus was here and He suffered for sins He didn't commit. But it was redemption that was in play. That's what was going on. And so rather than take up arms, so to speak, to defend himself, it says Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. It doesn't say he waited on God, but that's the same thought for you and I. Even if you find yourself in a situation where you're suffering for for reasons you shouldn't be, maybe you are unjustly suffering. Someone's holding you accountable for what you're not responsible for. Someone else blew it and you're picking up the pieces. Sometimes that's what God's will for your life and mine is. It's not always blue skies and green lights. Sometimes it's suffering. That's God's will. But God has the power to preserve you and your faith through those times as well. So it's not always deliverance in the way we want deliverance. Sometimes God's looking at eternal issues and we're looking at temporal ones. So, no matter what trials or difficulties you face today, next week, later in life, don't make other people or even your own resources your goal or your help. But remember what David knew, that real power and real kindness to use that power on the behalf of others was God's. Uh, Let me say this too in closing. You know when we read Psalm 62... When I read Psalm 62, I'm David. And I bet when you read Psalm 62, you're David too. You're the poor oppressed one. But there's another group in Psalm 62, isn't there? There's the group that doesn't like David. And there's the group that's looking at an opportunity to harm someone else. And there's a group that's talking nice to David face to face and daggers behind his back. And so we'd be remiss if we didn't say, by the way, don't put yourself and don't live in this company, this Brutus company that David talked about here. Don't you and I be the ones who are delighting in the instability in someone else's life or the the vulnerable state of life they find themselves in or the disaster that happens to someone else. Even if you think to yourself, oh yeah, you know, they had it coming. I could see it, you know. Don't delight in that. You throw yourself in with the wrong crowd, with the wrong company. And don't be the ones who are talking nice to someone face to face and then talking bad about them behind their back to someone else. In other words, recognize that you can play the other side of this psalm. You're not just David. We're not just David. Sometimes 
We're tempted to be the other side of this equation. We're tempted to be the ones who are speaking nicely and carrying daggers. Don't go there. God delights to save and to restore. Let's not make ourselves a part of the company that's finding glee or some kind of self-satisfaction in the disaster that befalls others. That's not what God wants from us or for us or for others. And the scriptures, if you guys have any time, the scripture talks a whole lot about this whole concept of waiting on God. If you do a, a concordant search just on wait or waiting or waits, you'll see it's, it's a theme throughout both Testaments. The same on the brevity of life as far as our, uh, our humanity that we're here briefly. There's a ton of stuff, both Testaments, about the same thing. And those, those give us perspective to look at life with so that like David, we say, boy, life's short. And I don't have it together, so I better wait on God to put those pieces together for me. And then let me close with a passage that's kind of a kind of right field, but it's, it somewhat ties these elements together. When Paul uh, shared the gospel in the town of Thessalonica, these guys had a great persecution right off the bat. And Paul writes them a letter, and he's heard some about how they fared since, his la- since he left. And he says this about them. He said... The word is out that you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It seems to me this verse kind of ties these things both together. You are those who turn from idols, from vain help, to God. Your focus now in life is God and you're waiting. You're waiting for Jesus who delivers you from the coming wrath, eternally. You're good to go. And when Christ returns, you don't need to worry. You're on His side. You're not under wrath. You're saved. You know who you belong to. You know where you're going. This is great. This should be true of us. We've turned from the vain helps, the vain elements of life to God. And then we live a life in which we're waiting on God for the specific issues of life. But then we have an eternal perspective that we're looking up, waiting Christ's return and the installment of His eternal kingdom. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Lord, we are uh, creatures of brevity. We live and draw breath for a moment. Uh, We take the stage, Shakespeare says, in these short acts, and then we're gone. Lord, help us to live life in such a way that our time here is meaningful, that it accomplishes all the good things you mean for us to. Help us not to rely on ourselves or others for these ultimate things. Help us to be responsible in all the ways you call us to be, Lord, on one hand, and yet be uh, have a disposition of waiting on you and seeking your will and your face on the things in which we understand we are inadequate to face. Lord, I love the fact that you both have power and you're loving so that you're willing to use that power on our behalf. Help us to give you the things that concern us, Lord, and trust you for their outcome. In Jesus' name, amen.